eyes and heard with my own ears such great things about this church. My heart is so warmed being among you. That was a beautiful song, great song service, just a really good spirit here, and I'm amazed at the outreach you're doing with the feeding people, 185 families a week or some ridiculous number like that. I'm just kind of astonished. And the best thing that I've heard so far is that you got through COVID and the vax and all that drama without hating each other. (laughs) I'm so proud of you, seriously. Because the enemy, if he's doing one thing above anything else, he's trying to get his people, God's people, excuse me, to divide into camps. And if he can get us into camps to thinking that each other are the bad guy, then he has succeeded. He has triumphed and the battle is lost. We are strong when united, and I know that there are deal-breaker issues and lines we can't cross, and I, but I think the whole COVID-vax thing, even though it was complex and difficult to know just what to do, didn't need to divide God's people. And even if we see it differently, we didn't need to go into battle mode over it, and I'm so proud of you for, and I've heard this from several sources, Maybe someone's out there going, well, you have no idea. But I have heard it from at least two or three witnesses that it went really well and that you were able to get through. And I know there were struggles. There were struggles for all of us, but I'm so proud of you, and I just want to say that. So glad to be here at Medford. What do you call this church? Medford Seventh-day Adventist Church? Not very complicated, is it? So thankful. you You got to understand, everything's new to me right now, so I'm going to all these places and everything's new, so I forget names. But I'm so thankful to be here this weekend to share with you just kind of some highlights from a larger course that I do called Anxiety and Depression Relief. Originally, the course was designed to just be an online course that people purchased, and all of a sudden people started asking me to come and present it in live audiences, so I'm very thankful for the opportunity to do that. It's kind of an unexpected blessing. I'm going to be starting out, we're going to be talking about a transformed mind. How many of you were here last night, by the way? Okay. And how many of you are coming tonight? (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) You guys have great attendance as well. You come out to events, which is awesome. We're going to be talking this morning a little more about my department. I was talking about how to build a healthier brain last night. But this morning we're going to get more into psychology and how we think and how we operate as human beings psychologically. And I've entitled my talk, a transformed mind. And I want to start out with a testimony about how God worked in my life to transform my mind. Because as I mentioned last night, I'm kind of an open book about these things because I believe that through vulnerability we're powerful. So I'm just sharing with you my own experience, and that is that I've struggled mightily with anxiety and depression. And that's kind of why this whole course came into existence, because my search, my journey, led me to materials and ideas and techniques that have been very helpful to me, and I want to share them with you. So when I was going through that whole journey, in the middle of all that, I went to graduate school. As I mentioned, I think I told you guys that when my kids launched, they grew up, they're going off on their own, they don't need me anymore. And I decided that I wanted to reinvent myself by going back to graduate school. Yeah, I'm convinced that that's what women need to do. When their children grow up and leave home, they need to reinvent themselves and have a second wind kind of life. And so that's what I did. And I was going to go back to graduate school. And I was torn between, did I tell you guys this? Seminary 
and school for counseling. And I went to my husband and I said, would you like to be married to a pastor? Oh, I think it was you that I said that to. Yeah, on the Better Life TV yesterday. I said, would you like to be married to a pastor? And he said no. And so counseling school it was. Being the last of the obedient wives, I decided to submit to my husband and not to bring misery and distress upon myself. So went to school for counseling, and I went to a secular program. And I went in as a firm believer in Jesus and the scriptures, believing that there was a system of psychology to be found in scripture, but that there were things that we hadn't uncovered from scripture maybe, and possibly studying the secular sciences would help uncover some of those principles. Because, you know, Paul used the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy, to realize what they had all along, if you know what I mean. So maybe there were some things in the secular sciences that would enlighten me and open my eyes to what had been in God's word all along. And so I went into this secular program called Capella University and studied the theories of Freud and Skinner and Rogers and all the great minds of psychology for three years, went in believing that the Bible was a great psychology book, came out believing that the Bible was a great psychology book because all of the basic principles that these great minds have discovered through trial and error and scientific inquiry are all there in scripture, and you're going to see that this morning, that everything good comes from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. So I was really happy to be studying psychology, and I have to admit that having been a very avid and, and committed Christian for a number of years, I was still struggling with anxiety and depression on a fairly significant scale, Then I studied psychology in my master's studies, and I experienced a little bit of healing and recovery from studying at a secular university. That doesn't bode well, usually, for those of us that want to believe that everything is found in religion. But I'll explain to you why I think I improved after studying psychology on a master's level. Number one, I had a job for the first time. Like, I had always been in music before that. I did music in a church context, and if anybody here has done music in a church context, you know it's basically a vow of poverty. So for the first time in my life, I had a literal job, and I was earning money, and I think that made me feel a little bit better. But more than that, I think it was that I learned some things from the study that I did about how the mind worked that ended up helping me. And it was hard for me to admit that because I thought, you know, everything should be all bound up in my faith and I should just get it straight from church and from religion. But for whatever reason, those things had not come to me. I believe they were in the word all along, but they had not come to me in that way. But when I started to study, I started to understand them. So what I'm going to be presenting to you this morning is what has really been in the word of God all along. But I'm going to be breaking it down for you and making it useful. How does that sound? Let me pray. Father in heaven, please be with me. Give me a clear and helpful message to these wonderful people. I'm so privileged to be here. I ask that you would bless in Jesus' name. Amen. So the core thought here this morning is we can change our thoughts. Someone gave me a plaque. It said, don't believe everything you think. And my husband took a little post-it note and put it over the word think and wrote, idiot. Don't believe everything, you idiot. (laughs) I walked into my office, and there it was. 
My husband's a little rough around the edges, you have to understand, but, but you know, he made a good point. So anyway, don't believe everything you think. We are gonna think things, we are sometimes gonna feel things, we're gonna have certain core beliefs that are just flat out wrong. And guess what? We can change those things about ourselves. So we should change the way we think. Let me share a couple of thoughts with you. This is from an author named Ellen White who wrote extensively um, much material about the life of Christ, about prophecy, but she also had a thing or two to say about psychology and how the mind worked. And so this is one of those statements. She says, if the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong. So what's leading, thoughts or feelings? Thoughts are leading and feelings are doing what? Following, right. So if the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong, and the thoughts and feelings combined make up moral character. Now that is such a profound statement, I can't even begin to tap into that, but I just wanna say this, that I feel privileged to be working with minds. That's my calling, that's what God has led me to, is working with people's minds. And I feel privileged because working with minds is one of the most sacred works in which human beings can engage. Now, I wanted to be an evangelist, like Mark Finley kind of evangelist. You know, I wanted to preach evangelistic series, but I couldn't get anybody to take me seriously about that. So I went to counseling. Okay, so now I'm doing counseling. But then I realized that really what's happening in evangelism is you're helping people prepare to meet their God. And if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, or you know the Seventh-day Adventist message, you know that we teach that Jesus is coming soon. We're called Seventh-day what? Adventists, so we believe Jesus is coming soon. There is, so there's coming a time very soon when we will meet Jesus face to face. And in preparation for that grand event, we want to be ready, right? And so being ready, we've learned this the hard way to some extent, is not just engaging in a set of behaviors. It's not about behavioral transformation only. It's about a complete preparation that involves the heart and the mind. So that transformation of character that takes place in preparation for the coming of Jesus involves thoughts and feelings. So as I come alongside people and help them change their thoughts, which will then change their feelings, I'm actually helping prepare them for the coming of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? So I'm very honored. Still an evangelist, guys. So if the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong. And the thoughts and feelings combined make up what? Moral character. If you yield to your impressions and allow your thoughts to run in a channel of suspicion, doubt, and repining, you will be among the most blissfully happy of mortals. No, you'll be among the most unhappy of mortals. You can make yourself miserable by the way that you think. We're told in Romans chapter 12 in verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your what? By the renewing of your mind. God is calling us to an internal transformation that yes, will then flow out into changes in the life, changes in the behavior, but it's inward flowing out not mere behavioral conformity. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, I discovered this in secular science. There's a type of therapy that has been found to be very helpful and therapeutic 
for anxiety and depression called cognitive behavioral therapy. Let me just boil down for you, how many of you have heard of cognitive behavior, or CBT we call it? Okay, it's quite common, it's used for a lot of different things, but namely anxiety and depression has been found to be very, very effective. So let me boil down for you the principle upon which cognitive behavioral therapy works. It's really very simple. We have events in our lives, right, that are distressing. We live in a terrible world. COVID was terrible, wasn't it? How many of you are willing to go on record saying COVID was terrible? It was terrible. <laughs> so events occur, and COVID drove down the mood and raised the anxiety of countless people. So we have events, and we would assume that those events lead directly to certain emotions, negative emotions that come from those negative events, right? That makes sense. Something bad happens, I get in a traffic jam, somebody treats me badly, I get you know, a bill that I wasn't expecting, I have a hurricane in Florida and there's two huge holes in my ceiling, it's appropriate to have negative feelings when bad things happen. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that people sustain those negative feelings too long and they come to what we might call negative sentiment override where your whole world becomes negative and you're constantly feeling and thinking negative. Have you seen this? Have you experienced this? I have. So the event occurs, it's a negative event, leads to negative feelings. Fortunately, there is not in reality a direct line from one to the other. The way that we feel about things is mediated by the way we think about things. And we need to not believe everything we what? think. So that's called cognitive processing. The way you think about what happens ultimately determines the way you feel about it. Let me give you an example. I'm a brand new cub. I'm a brand new cub counselor. Okay, it was the first time I ever did counseling just got out of graduate school, I'm doing my internship, I'm in this counseling center, and I get this client, right? They give me all the difficult clients. So they give me this client who's been coming for like 15 years, he hasn't been making any progress. So the guy comes in, he's probably six foot four, big basso profundo voice, just a real friendly guy, nice looking guy, just, just lovable from the moment he walked in. He had been a policeman. He ended up having to quit the police force because of some physical injuries, but he was still kind of, you know, a middle-aged guy. And I really enjoyed, you know, I met him. I think his name was Jim, and I shook his hand, and he was just super friendly. And he sat down across from me and put his face in his hands and blubbered like a baby for almost the entire first session we had. Just cried, tears coursing down his cheeks. And it turned out that it was a situation where he had done something wrong and he felt very guilty about it. There were a number of other layers that were happening, but that was the core of the issue. And I remember at one point he said, you know, I try to earn God's forgiveness, but I just can't earn it no matter how hard I try. Now, that was wide enough for a truck to drive through, if you know what I mean. I mean, you can't say something like that to a righteousness-by-faith enthusiast, a riotous believer in the gospel, and not get a sermon. I'm not supposed to preach in counseling sessions, but he, did, he opened the door to it, and so I was like, hey, do you want to know something from Scripture about that? <laughs> yes, he said, I do. I really do. I need help. 
And so I gave him a little Bible study on righteousness by faith, and I said, you have a basic flaw in your thinking, dude. Like, you think you have to earn God's forgiveness, and the Bible is crystal clear that it cannot be earned, that you just, no matter what you do, cannot earn God's forgiveness. No matter how hard you try, even if you had lived your life in utter moral perfection, you still wouldn't merit God's forgiveness or God's grace or even salvation. None of that would come to you through your own good works. None of it. In fact, salvation is a gift, and as soon as we make it based on our works, it's no longer a gift. In fact, we put God in debt to us, and I gave him the whole spiel from Romans and all that, and he started to grasp the gospel. And he dried his tears, and he realized, you know what? It does boil down to just receiving something. Brothers and sisters, one of the biggest hurdles in our souls One of the biggest sin hurdles, if not the biggest sin hurdle that we have to get over is the deservedness factor. And part of that deservedness factor is being unwilling to receive anything for free. When you come to the cross, that's your only option. Either that or walk away empty-handed. It's up to you what would you rather have? The riches of heaven, the mercy, the forgiveness, the grace, the joy, the eternal life, the future, the sunshine, the nature, the birds, good relationships, hope, well-being, or do you want to walk away empty-handed? What's your decision? That's ultimately what each person has to decide. And so I put that in front of him, and he gladly accepted the righteousness of Jesus, and saw from scripture that it was indeed a teaching, and we only had eight sessions together, and the end of eight sessions, and I don't mean to make myself look like magic therapist here, you know, because it always, doesn't always go this way, I promise, but after eight sessions, he said, you know, I really don't need to come back, I'm doing great, and, uh, and thanks, you know, I appreciate it, come to find out he'd been going to that same counseling center with different counselors for 15 years (laughs) and because he corrected one flaw in his thinking it was a major flaw it was a seismatic you know it was it was a big issue core issue but because he corrected that one thing he was able to recover so let's look at an example of how cognitive processing works It is normal for us to have negative emotions in response to negative events, okay? I just want to get that out on the table. Everybody understand that point? I don't expect you to always feel positive. I used to hate that song, always cheerful, always cheerful. I was like, because it's okay to have negative emotions, and I don't want you to develop secondary disturbance which is when you're disturbed, and then you're disturbed about being just, oh, I'm not supposed to have any negative emotions. I'm supposed to be good all the time. Don't go there. It's normal to have negative responses to negative events. Amen? Okay. The problem is when it's sustained for too long and when you go down, dig down too deep into that negativity. So let's look at the case of Joe. Joe goes through a breakup. Is a breakup fun? No. Breakups are terrible. They're heart-wrenching. They're very difficult. It involves one of the most sacred and intimate emotions of the human heart and can be very emotionally devastating. So this is, uh, this is Joe's experience. He's devastated. He feels unlovable. He feels like Charlotte is the only woman he could ever love and a bunch of other things for a period of time. But over the next five years, Joe moves in one of two directions. Either he moves in this direction where he says, Charlotte was the only woman I could ever love. He keeps telling himself this. 
I must be a real loser and I will never love again. If Joe continues to tell himself those lies, he will continue to feel the way he felt when they initially broke up, right? He will sustain that negative emotion into his future. Can you see that? But if, on the other hand, Joe says something a little more rational, a little more nuanced, a little more balanced, and honestly more truthful, like this, he's going to feel more stable. So the breakup was painful. I didn't want the relationship with Charlotte to end, but I learned from painful experience how to choose better and how to love better because there's also benefits that come from these negative experiences, right? Have you learned a few things from COVID? Has it grown you in some ways? We call that benefit finding or post-traumatic growth. You can go through really difficult experiences. You can walk away going, wow, I'm a different person. So he did that. He found the benefit in the very negative experience he'd had. And he learned to choose better and also how to love better. And ultimately he said, I'll make it through and I'll be stronger for it. Don't you love that? Isn't that a better way to approach things? If you're like me, you're gonna be inclined. I, I have this like melancholic personality, right? So I, for many years, was doing songwriting and music as a career. So I've written hundreds of songs, literally. And that artistic melancholic bent gave me a lot of great songs, guys, but it also brought me a lot of depression. I believed, as this melancholic temperament, as this depressed person, that if I walked on the dark side of the road, I was at least being honest. But it turned out that lies can come in the dark too. I had this hyper-conscientiousness. I felt like if I just look at the negative side of things, at least I won't be a Pollyanna, right? But I learned that the truth is somewhere in the middle of the road where the sun is shining some of the time and there's some shadows but it's more like this right here than this right here, amen? And I had to kind of get that through my thick skull and the Lord was able to deliver me. Okay, so I wanna share with you an exercise that I developed. I love these little acronyms. So I developed this little exercise to help people straighten out their thinking. It's called F-A-R, find, argue, and replace. You ready for it? Very simple. So number one, you're going to find what you're thinking. You have to identify what you're thinking. Now that typically comes in three steps. First, you identify the event, what upset you, traffic jam, someone was nasty, bill came in the mail, or whatever. You identify the event. Then you identify the emotion associated with the event. I felt distraught. I felt upset. I felt distressed. And then you identify what you were thinking when you felt that way. So now that you've identified what it was you were thinking, then you argue with what you're thinking. That's called forceful disputation. Let me give you a Bible verse for this. We see this idea of forceful disputation, which is promoted by cognitive behavioral therapists in Scripture. I'm not saying that, uh, well, anyway, these, God gave these people light. What can I say? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. Casting down imaginations. Notice the vigor what are you doing? Are you just, you know, shooing away imaginations? No, you're casting them down. You're being very vigorous about this. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God 
and bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There's some effort going on here. That's why we call it forceful disputation. You kind of have to sit down with yourself and say, self, you can't do that to yourself. Oh, I can't? I thought I was allowed to do that to myself. After all, I'm just doing it to myself. No, you even have to take care of yourself. See, you can't do that to yourself because if you do that to yourself, you'll get depressed and then you won't be able to serve people as well. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so you have to sit yourself down and like Bob Dylan said, give yourself a good talking to. He really did say that. He was a good songwriter. So, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So backing up to this three-part process, then once you have forcefully disputed your wrong thinking, you're gonna replace it with that more balanced thinking like we see here. Does this make sense? So it's a three-step process that I've developed here. And what I want to do now is I want to identify some of the distorted thought styles that are involved in that second step when you're sitting yourself down and pointing out what it is you're doing to harm yourself. You're typically going to point out some distorted thought styles. So let me give you some examples of distorted thought styles that are the most common, the ones that we typically engage in. Okay, One is catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is making things much worse than they really want when they really are. So I'll give you an illustration. I live in Florida, and there's lots of bugs in Florida. We have an outbuilding on our property. We rent it out through Airbnb. It's a lovely little tiny home type thing. And just when this lovely couple came to rent that outbuilding, so did a swarm of fire ants of biblical proportions. This is Florida, you have to understand. It's not like here, it's like they come and they sit on a building and they take over the building. So it was horrible, it was embarrassing and, and terrible. And in the, initially I thought they're gonna eat that whole building and leave just a little pile of sawdust. You know, I really catastrophized it in my mind. But then I realized, you know, I'm in Florida and there's people in this state that know how to deal with things like this. So I called Orkin, the friendly bug people. And they came along, they knew just what to do and they followed a certain protocol, and they got all those bugs out of that building, and they're not there anymore. So I initially had really catastrophized. It's just one example of how we make things worse than they are. What about mind reading? Mind reading is where you think you know what other people are thinking. Now, I will say we have certain intuitions, and gut feelings can give us some needed information, right? Or some, some helpful information. But the part of the brain that engages in intuition and gut feelings is not very good at precision. So we have to be careful about thinking we know what people are thinking. We might have a funny feeling, but you know, it's like when I am with a friend and she keeps looking at her phone, I get all offended. I don't realize she's like planning my birthday party. You know, we don't know all the details, right? So let me give you an example of mind reading. I was preaching. And there was a guy out in the audience, in the congregation, looking at me the whole time I was preaching like this. <laughs> and I just knew he was like gonna blog about me later and they were gonna put me out on, cancel me on Facebook or whatever. And so I was ready for anything. So I'm doing the shake people's hands after the sermon thing and the guy walks up and he goes, praise the Lord for that sermon, sister. And his face was exactly the same. <laughs> 
It was just that way. That was how his face was. I had no idea what he was thinking, but I thought, and it almost messed up my sermon. I was so unnerved by it, but turned out he was just like that. All right, so what about negative filtering? That's when we focus on things that are negative and suppress what is positive. So someone like Joe might say, nobody loves me. But there are people in Joe's life that love him. He's just suppressing the awareness of those people. What about overgeneralizing? One of the things we do sometimes with male-female differences is overgeneralize. You know, I could say to my husband, you're a man, you'll never understand this. And he'll say something like, you're a woman, you're going to be irrational. Well, you know, there might be an element of truth to those things, but we can be very, very black and white, so that's not healthy either. What about dichotomous thinking, kind of close to overgeneralizing? You know, have you ever heard something like, we're going to have fun on this camp out, or we're not? Only one of two options. We're either going to have fun, or we're not. I remember a camp out, church camp out, when I was a little kid. I didn't grow up in the Adventist church, but my church was very active with going into the wilderness with groups of people not knowing what we were doing. And our, it was a very interesting experience. Our food pack got torn into by bears. We found tooth marks in the peanut butter cans. I got a tick on my stomach. And the camp leader had heard that the way to get rid of a tick is to take a match and hold it next to the tick, literally. So I was like, he's like, stick your stomach out. And so he takes his match, and my stomach just like involuntarily went in because he forgot to blow out the match. You're supposed to blow it out and then hold it to the tick. Stuff like that happened the whole time. Did we have fun on the camp out? Yeah, I mean, it was great. There was beautiful lakes and the canoes and all that. But did we miss a few meals and have some nights of very little sleep because we heard bears outside? Yeah, that too. So very few things are black and white, and yet we can still have a positive attitude. What about shoulds? Did I skip one? No, shoulds, okay? So we can look at things and people through should lenses without ever saying, okay, it is what it is. What can I do about it? So think about the greeter at church, okay? The person that's supposed to be greeting people should be friendly and warm, right? Did you notice the word should? So say the greeter is really unfriendly and cold. I could sit there and say, oh, the greeter should be warm and just focus on that. Or I could say, you know what? What's going on with that greeter? And so I go talk to her and I find out that her dog just died and she's getting evicted from her apartment. And then I'm presented with a situation where I can impact it or not and I've taken off my should glasses. That's true human and Christian functioning. But to look at people entirely through a lens of should or shouldn't is counterproductive, frankly, in the long run. And it can make us sicker and sicker because things are never exactly as they should be, if you know what I mean. Okay, what about personalizing? Personalizing is taking responsibility on ourselves for what belongs to someone else. I have actually heard women in marriage counseling say, if I was more attractive, my husband wouldn't be using pornography. And I've heard spouses blame their spouses, for instance, men blaming women, for, I'm using pornography because of you. Sorry, but that just doesn't fly. That's not responsible, mature thinking. That's personalizing and then blaming. 
What about comparisons? What about unfair comparisons? Guys, social media is set up to make you completely consumed with comparing yourself with other people. I have had people in my counseling office crying because someone else had a bigger wedding ring with a bigger stone on it, weeping, tears coursing down the cheeks because of that comparison factor. When you look at social media, you're comparing your inside with someone else's outside. You're comparing your you know, dumpster fire of a life with someone else's white picket fence. Don't do that to yourself. You will upset yourself and make yourself miserable, okay? And then finally, emotional reasoning. This one particularly impacted me, and this is the one that got me and dragged me down into patterns of depression. You ready for this? Emotional reasoning is looking at your emotions as standalone evidence that something is true or not. So if I feel guilty, I must what? Be guilty. Do you see how that would lead down a spiral? I've seen it happen. I've seen it lead to fanaticism. If I feel like no one loves me, then it must be that no one what? Loves me. If I feel like there's nothing to look forward to in my life, it must be that there's what? Nothing to look forward to in my life. In other words, you reference your emotions as standalone evidence as to whether something is true or not. This is what happened to me. I looked at my emotions. I felt unloved. I felt that there was no hope. And then I assumed that because I felt that, it must be so. And then when I came to believe that it was so, I felt it even more. And then I looked at those emotions and said, well, it must be true. And I believed it even more. And then I felt it even more. And then I believed it even more. And then I felt it even more. And pretty soon I was in full-blown clinical depression. We have to be able to say to our emotions, I appreciate you very much, but you may be wrong. And we have to be able to accept that our emotions at times lie to us. Amen? Now, this is a three-step process. I think this is uh, recovery in a nutshell. Stop believing what you feel. Believe the truth. And then feel what you believe. Because as you believe, your feelings will what? Follow. That's right. That's right. All right, so I want to talk about trauma for a moment here because trauma factors into this whole scenario quite heavily. And I actually have a doctoral degree in with a concentration in traumatology. So I ate trauma for breakfast, lunch, and dinner while I was studying for my doctoral degree. So trauma is an important player here because oftentimes when people experience a traumatic event or events or circumstances that are traumatizing to them, it, it does something that I call softening the brain. The brain literally becomes vulnerable to irrational thinking when a person is emotionally flooded And so what often happens is in that vulnerable and softened state, the enemy comes along and whispers lies to that individual, and those lies have a sticking power that they would not have if that person wasn't in a traumatized state. Does that make sense? All right, so in light of that, I want to look at some diagnoses and some various aspects of trauma. Okay, so post-traumatic stress disorder, how many of you have heard of it? The three most common causes of post-traumatic stress disorder are, number one, guess, motor vehicle accidents. 
number two, active combat, and number three, sexual assault. So those are the three most common causes of PTSD. PTSD involves exposure to a traumatic event and then issues with remembering that traumatic event, dysregulation of the emotions, anxiety and or depression, avoidance of triggers that remind us of the event, and then finally, sometimes dissociation, where a person checks out when they're in the context of those triggers because the emotions are so overwhelming. What we believe happens with trauma is that the individual's memory doesn't process thoroughly, and then the mind keeps trying to bring that event to that person's awareness so that they can process it. And that's why the nightmares, and that's why the flashbacks, and so forth. Now, some of the habits that we develop in a trauma situation are very helpful in the short term, like dissociation, checking out. It makes it less overwhelming. But if you carry that into your life, it's going to cause problems. And avoidance can be very helpful in the short term. But if you keep avoiding things and keep avoiding more and more things, pretty soon you're going to be in a rough state. So trauma is a very, very difficult thing to deal with, but we need to become trauma-informed. We really basically go into survival mode in trauma, where we're scanning the environment for the next threat, and that works in an emergency situation, but it backfires over the long haul, because functioning well relies on building trust with other people. So there's another condition called CPTSD, that hasn't made it into the diagnostic manual yet, but it's very well understood and known in behavioral health circles, and I want to talk to you about that for a moment. CPTSD occurs more in a given circumstance than a discrete event, typically in childhood when that individual is in the developmental process and they're faced with either an abusive or an addictive or, in other ways, a chaotic home life. And there are continual, low-grade assaults on their dignity and or safety. So the child is growing up in an environment where they're seeing their parents go at each other and get physically abusive. They're seeing mom and dad drunk all the time. There's people in and out that are not safe people. One day, the child's mother gives him a peanut butter jelly sandwich, and the next day puts out a cigarette in his arm. These kinds of and I don't mean to say that they're small things, but these kinds of less than maybe the hugeness of a traumatic event, but continual continual and repeated are very damaging, particularly to someone in a developmental process. So it's kind of like this. PTSD would come as the result of getting punched in the jaw and a tooth knocked out and your jaw broken. CPTSD would be someone tapping your face like this, but doing it for five days in a row. Eventually, that would become an injury, and it would become inflamed and then infected and could cause just as much trouble and distress as a punch to the jaw. Does that make sense? So it's a less discrete event stretched out over a longer period, but has the same effect. So it ends up disrupting trust-building mechanisms, our ability to trust other people, self-calming, the ability to self-regulate, And then identity formation, the ability to see ourselves as who we are. Stable, healthy relationships become more difficult. Self-comforting and self-calming become more difficult. And many people resort to blaming themselves for what happened because that helps them feel a sense of control. So it's a very complex disorder that's been extensively studied. 
in the form of what we now call adverse childhood experiences studies. How many of you have heard of adverse childhood experiences? Okay. So let me give you a little background here. There was a doctor named Dr. Vincent Felitti from California. He was working with Kaiser Permanente Hospital Systems, and they had a weight loss clinic. People were dropping out of the weight loss clinic even though they were losing weight. Dr. Felitti wanted to know why they were dropping out, and so he engaged in some interview processes with people who had dropped out of the program. One day, it was the end of a long day, he was very exhausted, he had his clipboard, he was asking a series of questions to a young woman. Instead of asking, at what age was your first sexual experience, which is a common question doctors ask, he said, what was your weight at your first sexual experience? And he didn't even realize he had asked the question wrong. And she said 45 pounds. And he asked the question again. He was confused. And she said the same thing. And he looked up and he realized what had happened. And she looked down at the floor and said, it was my father. And the light went on in this man's mind. He realized these people that are dropping out of the weight loss clinic have trauma histories. And they're somehow using food and weight and so forth as a coping mechanism. So he went on with others to engage in a huge research project that involves 17,000 interviews, and here's what he says about it. Our study of the relationship of adverse childhood experiences to adult health status in over 17,000 persons shows addiction to be a readily understandable, although largely unconscious, attempt to gain relief from well-concealed prior life traumas by using psychoactive materials. In other words, people were, self, people were self-medicating in the case of Kaiser Permanente Weight Loss Clinic with food, but the same principle applied to drug addiction and alcohol addiction. Here is the pyramid that came out of the Adverse Childhood Experiences study, and what we understand now is that when people have these adverse childhood experiences, they are more likely to have disrupted neurodevelopment and then social, emotional, and cognitive impairment, adoption of health risk behaviors, disease, disability, and early death. Now, it's not a square. That doesn't mean everybody that has an adverse childhood experience is going to end up dying early, but it creates a trajectory. A greater percentage of people struggle with these things as a result of adverse childhood experiences. Now, I'm going to get even more depressing here, but then I'm going to encourage you, so hang on. So here's Tom. He's a living embodiment of ACEs. By the way, we call them ACEs, and it's like a, you know, kind of a bragging point. How many ACEs do you have? (laughs) Four. How many ACEs do you have? Two, you know, that type of thing goes on in behavioral health circles. Okay, so here's Tom. Alcoholic parents, abusive father, molested by his uncle at six, developed an anger problem, couldn't concentrate, couldn't pay attention at school, got into gang life at 16, Marries Jenna at 24, he ends up drinking too much, he just doesn't have control, hasn't processed his trauma, he's drinking. He ends up beating Jenna in a drunken state, she leaves him, he becomes depressed, he uses food and alcohol to self-medicate, he withdraws from people, he develops high blood pressure, heart problems, and dies at 49. Isn't that depressing? But that's what happens with these adverse childhood experiences. Fortunately, we have a God in heaven, and he believes in restoration. He's capable of restoring us. There's something that came to me. I was in the middle of my studies on trauma, and I kept seeing these horrible stories like the one I just read, and the point that trauma is so damaging emphasized over and over again, and I finally said, wait a minute. 
there's a bigger picture here. The Bible does not present trauma as ruining people's lives. The Bible does not say that certain things happen to us when we're young and vulnerable that are out of our control and that they determine our future. The Bible promotes the idea that our own choices can lead us in a better direction in partnership with God. Amen? So I started to notice all of the scriptures that talked about the difficulties of life doing something for us. This light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's katergazetai in the Greek, and it means bring down to an end point. There's a There's an end point to all this, all the suffering we experience. There is something that can come out of it. And when God works through these negative experiences, he can bring forth a new thing, amen? So God is a God of restoration. He doesn't protect us from the vicissitudes of life. I think that's quite obvious. But he does take those horrible things and transform them. What is the worst thing that's ever happened on planet Earth? I would argue that it's the crucifixion. Humanity killed God. What's the best thing that's ever happened on planet Earth? I would argue that it's the cross. God saved humanity. The worst thing and the best thing were the same thing. It's just that the cross is God recycling the crucifixion. God can recycle whatever's gone wrong in your life and he could bring a good thing out of a bad thing. And that's just, that's just a fact. He can. He is a God of restoration. So part of that process is us discovering the lies, the core misbeliefs that the enemy embedded into our hearts when we were in that traumatized state. And typically those lies involve ourselves, other people, the future, and God. Okay, I want to give you some practical steps here. So how do you discover what are my core beliefs that are not in line with the gospel, with the good news of God saving humanity? I would suggest that you ask other people, what do you think that I believe about myself? What do you think that I believe about other people? What do you think that I believe about the future? And what do you think that I believe about God? Ask them for their input, especially your close friends. They'll tell you the truth, many of them. I think you have some distorted thoughts about other people. I think you think everybody's out to get you. Or I think you, can't, you think that you can't trust anyone. Your good friends will tell you that. So ask those questions. You can also do some journaling that can also help process these things and help us discover uh, the core beliefs that we're carrying around with us day by day. And I think walking is a very powerful cognitive processor. So take some long walks and talk to God on your walks. Let's talk about mindfulness. This is another therapy that has been brought to the fore come from a tradition of buddhism some people completely reject it i have a background in new age thinking before i became a christian i mentioned to you last night that i was afraid my grandmother would be reincarnated so i became a vegetarian so i was really deep into new age and reincarnation and all of that stuff and i understand that people don't want to do the kind of meditation that's going to lead them toward new age kind of thinking but here's the thing is that There is no new thing under the sun. And much of what works in these different disciplines is actually biblical. So what I did was I looked at mindfulness and I asked myself, what is working about it? And I bet you anything, whatever is working about it is scriptural. So let me just give you a definition first. Mindfulness is being fully engaged in your present experience, self-observing in a non-judgmental manner. 
Mindfulness is basically self-awareness with the goal of self-regulation. The effective aspects of mindfulness are breathing. We did some breathing last night. Focusing on one thing. Why can't we focus on a verse of scripture? Recapturing of the imagination. Why can't we imagine ourselves walking hand in hand with Jesus through a field of flowers? Or why can't we imagine the closing scenes of Jesus' life? Why can't we imagine heaven? That's the recapturing of the imagination. We should use it for good. And then finally, mindfulness, which is the ability to take a step back from your present experience and observe what's going on with you. Paul said it's no longer me, but sin that dwells in me. Paul took a step back and looked at all that was going on with him in his wrestling with sin. That's mindfulness. That's biblical mindfulness, is taking a step back and looking at yourself from a little bit of a distance. One of the most important aspects of mindfulness is what we call affect labeling. This is a feelings wheel up here is what we call it. You can find that online. It's just a way of identifying different emotions. So affect labeling is the act of putting a label on what you're feeling. We all need to learn to say, I feel fill in the blank. I feel upset. I feel distraught. I feel sad. I feel overwhelmed. I feel anxious. I feel troubled. I feel a sense of dread. We all need to learn how to identify our feelings. In fact, that's been found to be more effective than any other therapy for arachnophobia, which is a phobia of spiders. They had the people just name the emotion that they felt. When you name the emotion, you bring it under control. Self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit. I have this conversation with my husband. He says, I don't, want, I don't want feelings, I just want facts. And I say, the fact is, I feel this way. <laughs> you can't argue with it, it's true. I feel this way, it's a fact, I do feel this. And that's what you're doing with affect labeling, is you're just admitting what you feel. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wind up here, because we've been talking for a long time, but let's talk about self-care. Because, you know, God wants you to take care of yourself, It would be great if he did it all for you, but guess what? He puts us in a position of stewardship over our own well-being. And what I find is that anxious and depressed people tend to be unkind to themselves. Now, there are some of us who are self-indulgent, and that does happen, and sometimes people develop cycles of self-indulgence and then self-deprivation, and that's a separate thing. But if you're one of those people who tend to deny yourself in an unhealthy way, tend to deprive yourself of what you could give yourself. You know, I went back last night, I was really tired, and I just kind of spaced out in my hotel room for a while, and I didn't feel bad about it. You're not a human doing, you're a human being, right? It's not about how much you produce. If it was, God wouldn't give you a whole 24-hour period one day a week so you could do nothing but love and worship him. Right? So, People with anxiety and depression tend to be a little hard on themselves, so I want to speak to that now. If I had a bicycle in my yard, and it was all rusty and old, and I took the bicycle, and I threw it in my van, and I took it to the dump, would that be okay? Yeah, that'd be okay. What about if my neighbor had a bicycle in their yard, and I took it to the dump without asking them? Would that be okay? No. Why would it be okay for me to throw my bike away but not their bike? Because it's my bike. The reason people are unkind to themselves is because they think they own themselves. You do not. You are bought with a price. You are precious to Jesus, and he has bought you with an infinite price of his own blood. 
and he says, I'm leaving you a charge, and that charge that I'm leaving you is to take care of yourself so that you can live an abundant life and so that you can serve others. So can I get a yay and amen from those of you that have maybe been a little unkind to yourself because there is a biblical self-care. And I just want to end with, um, with that thought that if we're going to be mentally healthy, we're going to have to learn how to receive from Jesus what we do not deserve. Part of abundant mental health is receiving the gift of love and salvation from God no strings attached. Sometimes expressions hold half-hidden truth, like a rare orchid deep in a forest, like the lack that we show when we say, shame on you, when those words make the shamer the poorest. But that shame was indeed placed on one of great store who bore all of our sin to reclaim us, and receiving his gift while it proves us as poor, tells of mercy that rendered us blameless. Shame on you, Jesus, shame on you. Shame on the one to whom no shame was due. Shame you despised and yet took to the tree where the shame was on you and the grace was on me. Sometimes we try to diminish the curse, this essential foundational scandal. We try putting it off on someone even worse or think shrinking it down we can handle, but that shame can't be shrunk. It's too glaring to hide and we don't have the power to throw it. So we must be released to the one crucified in a way that deep down we can know it. Shame on you, Jesus, shame on you. Shame on the one to whom no shame was due. Shame you despised, but then took to the tree where the shame was on you and the grace was on me. We will never exhaust it, this theme of the love that placed infinite love in the worst place, and then in return, all he asks is the shame that put him on the cross. In the first place, shame on you, Jesus, shame on you, shame on the one to whom no shame was due, shame you despised, and then took to the tree where the shame was on you, and the grace was on me. Can I get a yes from you folks? Will you give that shame to Jesus because that's all he wants from you right now is that you surrender that shame to him? Can I get a yay and amen from you? And this is where I pray to close. Okay, let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity to pour my heart out to these folks. Things that are so important to me and so real to me and I hope that I made it real to them especially that last point, God, that all that shame came on you so that we could walk free. We cannot deny the fact that you are our substitute and surety, God, that you are the one who took our place, that you are our representative before God, our high priest, and we thank you so much for giving the ultimate price so that you could play that role. We don't even begin to scratch the surface of all that you've done for us. But the one thing you're asking us this morning is that we give you that shame and that we let you give us in exchange hope, grace, mercy, love, and, and, and just abundant life, God. I pray this for this people here today, Lord, that they'd be filled up to overflowing, that the love of God shed, is shed abroad in their hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to them, Romans 5.5. 5. I pray this promise over them that they would be filled up to all the fullness of God is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.